tis the season to be jolly, but tis also the season to be jolly careful. Those were, of course, the words of Prime Minister Boris Johnson in what might become one of the defining moments of his career, as he allows families to meet up for Christmas during a global pandemic. Today, we'll be discussing the new COVID rules put in place for December and how they'll be impacting the fight to end this pandemic. Welcome to this episode of the Meridian Podcast. Hello. Hello, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since we filmed a podcast. Yeah, it has. It's been at least three weeks. A yeah. somewhat unplanned hiatus, the pandemic uh, we were discussing. Took you down. Took me down <laughs> for, for three weeks. But I actually filmed our last episode having COVID and not knowing. So this is a testament to if you feel poorly, guys, stop trying to work through things. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting talking with, uh, you know, talking about covid with you, someone who's now had it and been through the experience of all the chaos with testing, etc. Oh yeah, what a nightmare. To be honest as well, like it's times like that where as fun as it is to be in a foreign country, like you just want to be at home. Do you know what I mean? Interesting <laughs> following the developments in the UK whilst in bed suffering with it myself. But things are better now. I'm I still can't taste and smell much, but other than that. Oh, that is not the one for Christmas. No, don't even, don't, like, literally I am manifesting that I will get my taste back before Christmas properly because I can't, like, food is, like... What is the point of Christmas without the food? Yeah, because when you get to a certain age, like, presents are, like, secondary to, like, food and family. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Okay, so, yeah, we've got a great lineup of guests today for the episode. Um, Let's just let them introduce themselves, I think. Uh, Izzy, would you like to go first? Just explain to listeners you know, why you were interested in coming on the podcast and what your perspective on all of this is. Hi, so my name's Izzy and I'm a freelance journalist and I have cystic fibrosis, so I've been shielding since March um, and also miss spending Diwali with my family. So I'm really like interested to talk about this because I understand where people are coming from. Yeah, of course. Uh, Jonathan? Hi, yeah, so yeah, I'm Johnny. I'm a student studying media and comms at City University and I was a researcher for Roy Stewart's mail campaign from January to March and it's interesting for me because it's affected me so much because I live between Edinburgh and London so I've no idea the different rules, different systems, different media phrasing, different everything just between Scotland and England. Yeah yeah, yeah. very interesting. Um, yeah we'll talk about the huge variation in the rules around the country um, and finally Charlotte. Uh, hi, I'm Charlotte. I also go to City University London. I'm a trainee journalist and as well as being generally quite interested in politics, I ended up moving to London. I'm living in halls for my degree. So it's really, really interesting, like uh, all the dialogue around students going home for Christmas and stuff. It's just very, it's a very weird time to be a student. And so that's kind of why I'm here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, where do you think we should start, Eve? Do you think we should talk about tears or talk about Christmas? I think we're going to have to start with the new tears, really, because, I mean, Christmas is actually, well, not a long way away, but, I mean, seeing how much things can change. I mean, think about it. Like, honestly, I felt like September time, everything still felt relatively normal. It was kind of like we had a bit of a, not a half time from the pandemic, but things were, no, I completely you know, agree. relaxed. And then suddenly, within about a week and a half in October, we'd gone from literally relatively no little small rules compared to the start of the pandemic to 
literally an announcement of a second lockdown. So I think that we need to make sure that we take December one week at a time. We've got the students yeah. coming back. Then we've got the festive period. And then we've got the fallout from both of those things to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we had the announcement of the new tier system this week. And... Whilst the rules are fairly similar to the previous tier system in terms of what you can do within each tier, the distribution of the local areas that are going to be within each level is really, really changed. Um, And I think we now have a situation, of course, we're talking about only England here. Other devolved countries have their own systems. But out of England, I think 99% of the country is going to be in either tier two or tier three. So in tier two, you've got 32 million people. That's 57% of the of the population. In tier three, you've got 23 million people, which is 42%. And um, in tier one is the on- only the lucky people of Cornwall, the Isle of Wight and the Isles of Scilly. Um, so lucky them. That's 713,000 people, which is obviously a tiny percentage. So Eve, what was your reaction when you heard and saw the geographical distribution of these new tiers? Um, I mean, I knew that I knew that my city would be like I, I literally from day dot, we were like, there is absolutely no way that we won't be in tier three. I'm from the West Midlands and the West Midlands is still very much one of the hotspots of the virus. Um, but I definitely felt this time that like I felt like the approach was kind of opposite to what it was with the first tier system in that in the first tier system, um, people tended to slide up the tiers, like regions tended to slide up the tiers. And then it got to the point where these tiers were not doing enough and we had to go into lockdown. But it seems this time it's reversed. So they've put more in the higher tiers with the hopes of using mass testing to push people back down i feel like the tier the tier system has got a bit of a different feel to it this time but also at the same time i think there is definitely a big sense of injustice especially in some of the cities where they really have managed to bring infections rate rates down like manchester um so i don't know what the rest of um our guests think about that if anybody wants to jump in with what tier they're in how they feel about it oh i'm in tier two in sussex but i mean because i've been shielding i mean it doesn't really matter what tier I'm in because yeah. I'll still be staying yeah. in. So, Izzy, could you talk to us about your experience of shielding this year? Um, you know, I'm not going to ask how it's been because I'm sure it's been horrific. And obviously all of our thoughts are with you and with your family and anyone else who is shielding. But in terms of policy, how have you found it? How have you found the guidance from the government? Do you think it's been clear throughout? Do you think it's evident that people who are shielding like yourself have been thought about in a lot of the conversations within government? No, not really. I mean, in the first lockdown, there was more guidance. Like we were told, like everybody that was clinically extremely vulnerable had to stay inside and like they were giving care packages and people in the like local councils would phone and check in and stuff. But I feel like when shielding ended, it was very much like, okay, you can do what everyone else is doing. But that didn't really feel safe to me because like, I mean, it's, a virus that could like impact my lungs like and my lungs are already damaged so I just couldn't risk it so then I carried on shielding over summer and then in the second lockdown like it was just advised that we shield and I guess it kind of felt like they'd put that in place so that the government wouldn't actually have to help us because they've just like advised it um so we haven't had any support um this time around so just to be clear when was the last time you left the house how, how often are you allowed to go out under what circumstances so I leave the right. house like right. to go on a walk uh, but but that's it like I haven't done anything else I've not been into any shops or like wow. anything since March. Since, oh, since March wow that that is horrible and 
if you'd like to talk about this, if you don't mind me asking, how has that affected you mentally? I mean, yeah, like it has had a big impact on my mental health. I mean, I'm lucky that with my health care, I get like a ther- like therapy. But um, yeah, it is tough. Like I, I have found it very like weird and I feel like I'm living in like a a bubble almost like where the world outside kind of is not real. Like it's very weird. Um, but I think that like they, people forget about the shielders who've like been staying inside like that we also have like mental health problems and like it's affecting us because I I know I've kind of chosen to keep doing it but like it's not been fun and I haven't yeah. like liked doing yeah. it at all yeah um Charlotte and Johnny I think I'm right in saying that both of you live in London a lot of the policy around Covid has been criticized for being slightly London centric or perhaps more broadly Southern centric. What was your reaction to the tier announcement? And just for those listeners who are unaware, London will be going into tier two. So if I would, if I am in London, I'd be in tier two, but because lockdown hit, because I knew lockdown was going to be coming, I moved back home in Scotland. Okay. So it's made it, and since there's different rules here and then there's different rules down South and then with the news prioritizing the English rules, I'm not really sure what's even allowed here. So I haven't really been out to many places. I've been to the gym and been shopping. And that's about as exciting as it gets. But I can like, I can understand from a shielding point of view because I've, I've asthma. So I know it's nowhere near as bad as just by most of it. It's still, I've had to be slightly more careful, I feel. It's sort of mind-boggling the rules differing between Wales, Scotland, England, Northern Ireland. Because people jump between England and Wales and England and Scotland a lot more than people think. Charlotte, I'll bring you in on this. What would you say to Johnny's point that the news is dominated by changes and updates on the English rules? Uh, Because I live in Scotland as well, and in the national news at least, virtually all the focus seems to be on England and the changes to the rules there. Do you think that's a legitimate criticism of the news media at the moment? I completely agree. Yeah, they do, like, they prioritise the English rules so much, and it's like... They talk about like having a united approach and stuff for Christmas, but it's very much an afterthought, I think. Like I've got a mate in like Glasgow and like him, he'll only find out what's going on for him like a few days after we've all had it in the news here. And it just seems like it just seems very much like very little awareness. You get like BBC like breaking down like um what it means for the UK and then like absolutely nothing in Scotland, Northern Ireland as well, and like uh Northern Ireland are going through like a circuit breaker lockdown at the moment yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And there's absolutely barely anything about that on the news either. It's very much like uh sort of England centric thing. It did seem like at the start of the pandemic, as you were saying, that, that we had a very united approach um as the sort of four nation response um just as you sort of see across europe actually that countries kind of especially countries like germany for example with like very with devolved systems kind of came together and were like okay this is like an imminent threat we need to tackle it but then obviously over the summer and then as as um cases began to rise again we did sort of notice a breakdown in those relations um do you think there's a chance that our four nations will come together for the final push, work together to sort of like roll out the vaccine? Or do you think that it's very much going to carry on being a each to his own situation after Christmas? Well, they definitely should do. They need to in order to get things done. But I feel like what's happened, like it's just like the other nations have gotten impatient with the prime minister's approach to it. They don't agree with it. And so that's led to them doing their own in some way, slightly harsher approach to like um, the crisis 
So I do feel like they they're kind of losing faith in his way of dealing with it. Like stuff like eat out to help out, and then obviously it's going to lead to rising cases, and it's just yeah. Johnny, did you want to jump in there? So there's Scottish elections in May next year. So it, and so if they if the SNP begin to look successful as they already are through the portrayal of Nicola Sturgeon in the media and in her just overall just through her COVID briefings. I think she'll continue on the way she's doing and sort of pave a Scottish response instead of a grand UK response that serves her interests more than a grand UK response led by Boris Johnson, who she notoriously doesn't like. Yeah, I think that the politics of this in terms of the union is just so, so interesting. It's clear that throughout this crisis, Nicola Sturgeon has tried to draw as much of a contrast with herself and Boris Johnson as possible. And she's done that through so many different ways but I think the daily briefings then carrying those on uh, her basically delivering virtually all of them she's really tried to create that contrast and look we won't know until the pandemic is over whether different countries fared better than others within the UK and around the world but I think that it's fair to say that at the moment, at least, Nicola Sturgeon has won the war of the narrative. She's won control of discussions about leadership when it comes to COVID. And do you know what? I, I'm not making a judgment on whether Nicola Sturgeon has outperformed any other leader. But I think objectively, if I were Boris Johnson, I would be really, really worried right now. This weekend is the SNP's virtual annual conference. And there is significant and sustained polling support for independence in Scotland now. And I think that in 10, 20 years' time, if we're looking at a UK without Scotland, COVID-19 could potentially have been the straw that broke the camel's back. I think in terms of keeping the union together, Boris Johnson has really taken his eye off the ball. You know, you could argue that he has plenty of other things to be doing right now, but I think politics north of the border is where the focus is going to be for the next five years at least. I think, like what you said about uh, the pandemic sort of having an impact on Nicola Sturgeon's leadership's quite interesting because we saw in New Zealand Jacinda Ardern like her reaction to COVID being held as one of the best in the world and that definitely helped her with her sort of own re-election. So returning briefly to the implementation of the new tier rules that have been announced, they're being voted on in Parliament on Tuesday. In my opinion, it is very, very likely that the Labour Party opposition will support these measures, in which case Boris Johnson does not need to worry about losing the vote. If that weren't to be the case, if Labour did not support the measures in Parliament, it's quite possible that Boris Johnson and the government would be in some serious trouble because there is serious unrest growing in the Tory party at the moment. A lot of Boris Johnson's backbenchers are getting really deeply unhappy about the way he's managing this crisis, especially in relation to the new tiers. Does anyone have any thoughts on any of this? With the whole kind of Dominic Cummings things, it was, I think a lot of people lost a lot of faith in the sort of the Tory government after diving to a Durham thing because because he started threatening to quit recently. It did seem like at a point that Cummings was going to leave on his own terms after after Johnson desperately clung on to him. Though they were saying, need to get rid of him, need to get rid of him. So that does sort of say a lot about Johnson's own weakness as a leader and his reliance on advisors like Cummings. Johnny, do you agree that the Dominic Cummings incident was pivotal in support for the government? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think as soon as they went against their own rules themselves, it just completely, everybody lost faith in them. You could see, especially when I was in London, 
as soon as that after that happened, everybody was just going about their business as if it was, as if it was normal. It did show a bit of contempt for the sort of wider UK population and wider English population that they that he was allowed to stay on and continue working, even though they might have been fine. Yeah, it does seem that it kind of established that narrative of the, that we've had a lot like during the lockdown of like the one rule for them and another rule for everybody else. I feel like that was the first real evidence of that. And I think that ever since that started at the start of the year, there have been so many different situations this year where that has also proven to be true. I can think of a few off the top of my head, for example, when the bars and restaurants were forced to close, but the bar in the um, House of Parliament was allowed to stay open until that got sort of like leaked that that was still open. Or there's also been debates about whether there are some sort of areas that should have been put into higher tiers but weren't out of the interests of Conservative MPs whose constituencies they were. So I think that from people I've spoken to that their trust has mainly been eroded by the sense that it feels like they're acting in the interests of certain people and not and other people and I think that that would actually lead us quite well on to talking about Christmas Eid Diwali and the sort of differing governmental response to that um so Izzy I believe it was you said that you weren't able to celebrate Diwali um with your family is that right yeah yeah so I I mean, I'm shielding anyway, so I wouldn't have been able to, but we normally do like a big family gathering and most of my family, well, like all of them had to spend it alone. And I think that, I mean, obviously Christmas is a major holiday, but so is Diwali for like a lot of people. And and so I think that it was just, feels like a bit hypocritical and a bit unfair. And especially with like Eid as well, being like told the night before that they were, areas were going to have to go into a lockdown, where whereas like, people at Christmas are going to be allowed to mingle and they've had weeks notice. I think it's just like a bit unfair and kind of shows like the priorities, I guess, of the government. But yeah, and it's just hard really because I think a lot, I know obviously Christmas is a really big and important time and it like will help a lot of people's mental health. And so that's like good. But people that celebrate Eden Diwali and other celebrations also have mental health and seeing their families would have been amazing for them. So I think, yeah. That's interesting what you say about it showing the priorities of the government. Um, if we just look at the rules for a second, in case people have somehow managed to miss the announcement of these. Um, so three households will be able to form a temporary bubble between the 23rd and the 27th of December. And they will obviously be able to mix indoors in private homes without social distancing. There will be no travel restrictions during that time. Um, but people will not be allowed to go to pubs or restaurants with their bubble. Does anyone want to jump in on whether they think these rules go too far, they don't go far enough, they're bang on, they're hypocritical? What were people's gut reactions to this really, really significant announcement from the government? Well, so I think, to be honest, I think, if- is he exactly right? I don't really get how they can sort of put together the idea that Christmas is the most important thing when Britain is essentially as multicultural and there are like hundreds of different ethnicities and ethnicities in the UK, especially with Eid and uh, Diwali that were recently there. And also, I think it's going to lead to lead more lead to more restrictions in January because Dominic Rab said there's a possibility of another third of a third wave. So I think that reopening for four days and every, millions of people getting on trains to come up to go to Scunthorpe, Dorset, you name it, everywhere in the UK. It's just going to lead to more cases and more restrictions in the future. Some people have argued um, that the government was not really left with, I don't know if I agree with this opinion, obviously, but I've seen a lot of people saying that the government wasn't really left with a choice, that so many people were going to break the rules regardless over Christmas, um, that 
the best thing that they could do was to try and give people a framework and advice on how to meet up. If they hadn't have, do we think really that if they hadn't have put a relaxation in place that people would have stayed at home? I'm not so sure. And I think that a lot of people hate to be a cynic, but a lot of people are saying that they've done this to cover their backs when infections inevitably rise in January, that at least they can say, well, we told you to do it sensibly. Um, and it could go back to that typical, like, finding groups of people to blame like they've done with students or whatever i don't know what you guys think about that argument. yeah i think there is some merit in that argument because i think politically the government have been left without a choice public polling has indicated and you know things you see on the news and people you, people we've all spoken to i'm sure has all indicated that people were planning to break the rules for christmas it it, it just was going to happen so i think this policy is aimed at trying to put some kind of a break on what could have been unmitigated chaos throughout December. They've said that these five days are when people can meet up. These are the numbers in which they can meet up. And I think that will be playing on people's minds. People will be probably slightly more keen to stick to the rules now that they have been granted these few days of what some people might call freedom. Now, of course, the opposing argument to that is that Actually, it isn't for governments to follow public opinion, but for governments to try and shape public opinion and to try and take a lead on these issues. Um, so I think, again, once COVID's all over, be as long as far away as it feels at the moment, but once it's all over, we're going to look back and the Christmas period is going to be really crucial, I think, in that if there is a huge surge in cases following the Christmas relaxation of the rules, I think the narrative is going to take hold that, you know, why did... Boris Johnson and his government not try and take a lead and say, do you know what, we understand this is incredibly difficult this year, we understand you want to see your families at Christmas, but this is what's going to happen, we think, based on scientific evidence, if we allow you to do that. Um, so it very much feels like the government is following public opinion rather than the other way around at the moment. Um, Izzy, can I just ask, so obviously you said that you missed out on celebrating Diwali. Uh, is Christmas a festive time for your family at all? Will these rules give you you and your family any respite whatsoever? Um, yeah, so I celebrate at Christmas as well because I'm mixed race. So I, I mean, I still won't be able to mix with anybody, like apart from the people I live with, um, who've also been shielding like to take care of me. But yeah, so I mean... I still won't be able to, but I know that, I mean, I'm happy for people to, that, that they're able to, but it does worry me because, like, the cases will rise again and it's going to put a lot of people at risk. Does anyone else think this was inevitable? They couldn't be the government that cancelled Christmas. You couldn't, you just couldn't do that. It just doesn't, like, it, all the headlines would be written for you, government cancels Christmas, government have roasted yeah. turkey, you <laughs> name it. There's so many puns that you could make that this. And then Boris Johnson, whose who's polling is already horrifically bad compared to every other leader, his polling would go further than that's already fell. So it's just going he, he, he can not. Yeah. Even though it's a ridiculous policy, it's just, he couldn't not cancel Christmas. It does seem like he was stuck a little bit between a rock and a hard place in, in this sort of situation. And he is also not alone. Um, Angela Merkel's just announced the same for Germany, where... Um, the lockdown here is actually being extended. They're not going to like a tier system or anything. But I think for, I think actually between Christmas and New Year, up to 10 people are allowed to meet up um, and there's no travel restrictions or anything like that. So I don't think that like if he hadn't have done it, he probably would have been the exception um, there because I think most European countries are admitting that probably the COVID fatigue and everything has meant that people, I mean, look what happened in America. <laughs> they said, don't travel for Thanksgiving and... Um, 
we saw, we'll guess we'll see how that turns out in terms of the figures and whether that makes the already very bad situation there even worse. But yeah, I mean, I'd add that I think obviously Christmas is a religious time. It's a festive time for many families, those who are Christians and those who aren't as well. Um, but it's also hugely important, the festive season, to the economy. So many sectors rely heavily on being able to pull in trade over Christmas at levels that they couldn't even dream of at other times of the year. And of course, many areas of the UK or of England, at least, are going to be spending much of December in tier three restrictions, restrictions which don't allow hospitality, for example, to open at all. And I don't know, do, do we get the impression, do we get the feeling that actually the loss of the Christmas trade could be the straw that breaks the camel's back for a number of businesses this Christmas? I think a lot of places are... Have it, like, I mean, how are any of these small businesses realistically going to be able to fight with the likes of Amazon this Christmas? Like, it's because now so many people are deciding to do their Christmas shopping online. I don't know anyone who's not done the bulk of their Christmas shopping online already. Um, I do think that these restrictions are going to be awful, not only for, um, you know, businesses, but also the real, real loser here, uh, arts and culture and hospitality. I mean, Christmas for theatres pantomimes getting cancelled left right and centre they'd organise new socially distanced pantomimes only for them to also probably be cancelled like I do think that this these restrictions are I think people are really going to struggle to make their businesses viable as we go into the new year um this probably be a little bit cynical but going back quickly to kind of like uh, the way the government are doing what are sort of prioritizing Christmas I do feel like for them it's definitely a bit of an economic reason as opposed to actually like um, obviously the UK is quite a secular country I, I don't think many people are going are celebrating Christmas for like religious reasons so for me it's definitely a kind of excuse to open up the retail to kind of make lots of money and to get the economy back on track so I do feel like Boris isn't doing this to save Christmas he's not not like part of like some Tim Allen movie it's literally just like I do think it's definitely very much entrenched in like um economic reason Primark's gonna be open 24 hours over in even tier three places like having these huge department stores open in tier three people running around you know how busy Primark is like mm. how is that mm. gonna help people control cases well Charlotte can I just pick you up on that can I ask do, do you think it is unreasonable for the government to be thinking at least partially about the economy right now because obviously we've had the chancellor's statement this week saying that the economic hardship hasn't even begun in this country following the covid pandemic we know that we're going to be paying for spending that has had to happen this year for generations to come do you not think it is slightly reasonable or responsible even for the government to be attempting to mitigate the economic damage by allowing even some christmas trade to occur i mean i understand your point but i do think like they, that's what they did in the summer the government eat out to help out yeah. and that has undeniably led to yeah. a huge spike in cases so i feel like the government would be better off like um rather than spending millions on defense to you know spending money on sort of giving businesses especially small businesses financial support to get through this difficult time mm. johnny what's your view of the economy versus health argument uh yeah so right now the borings at record levels since i've been alive the we're spending record levels on the covid response to the point of being that we've already spent i think on track and trace the amount for two aircraft carriers roughly which is staggering as it is my self-interest i would say we need the economy to get back to for especially people our age because the jobs market the economy are coming into 
is going to be quite 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 scary because some of the jobs we've been applying to they've been upwards of 700 people for an internship so i think we need to it's quite a difficult balancing act you need to be able to open business enough that they don't completely crash so and then you have to add in that the people shielding and the mental health benefit mental health problems and the rising in uh rising of suicide inevitably because of everybody's locking down. There needs to be like a holistic view of mental health, the economy, people's livelihoods, and then people themselves and how they're actually dealing with it. And Izzy, as someone who's been shielding for many months now, do you ever get frustrated when people start focusing on economic arguments rather than keeping the focus on the issues of public health and when we'll be able to finally come out of lockdown? I mean, I don't actually, because I do understand the importance of like, the economy and people's livelihoods. I think it's just a case that there's not been enough support for people who are like either clinically extremely vulnerable or just generally like have health problems that put them at higher risk. I just think that if there was a bit more support and measures that make it safer for people like me, then maybe there'd be ways of kind of looking after everybody. But I think that by just kind of enforcing like the areas are opening up or like shops and stuff that still makes it quite dangerous for me because I don't know like if other people have been breaking it or I don't know like you know it's just like a load of things for me to think about so personally I've just chosen to stay doing this uh, yeah like I don't think about it in just terms of like myself like I do think that the economy is important but so so is public health obviously and of course we could end up in a situation where we've put in all these lockdown measures to try and mitigate the public health risks which has obviously had a really adverse effect on the economy, but then the lockdown measures don't even work to mitigate the public health risks. So you have the worst of both worlds where the cases continue to rise and at the same time, so does the economic damage. I think that's the way we're heading. Really? In a way. Yeah, I think we haven't locked down strong enough and early enough and as back in March, we should have closed our borders. But I think that like the ramifications of the that economic problems are going to be going on for decades. And something else that we learned this week from the Chancellor's economic statement is that the government is going to be cutting the foreign aid budget from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%, which is a really big change to a policy that has been in place in the UK for a long time now. Let's have a listen to what he said. But during a domestic fiscal emergency, when we need to prioritise our limited resources on jobs and public services, Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people. I think it was kind of inevitable that we were going to start hearing these news. It, I don't have much memory, obviously, from the recession, the financial crash of 2008 and 2009, because um, I was eight. Um, but I do remember like the news in sort of like the years after that being equally as bleak. I think sometimes because of the shock that something like this does to an economy it takes a while for things to for the sort of economic reverberations to really become clear and I think that now we're starting to see the news of pay freezes pay you know and it it just doesn't bode well like Topshop like Arcadia is on the brink of collapse as well every single week it seems like we're looking at new businesses um falling into you know administration and sadly yeah I think Jonathan's right I think that I think that ultimately, even when we're out of the immediate crisis and the vaccine has meant that we can go back to normal life, there will be a lot of things that we can't go back to. There will be a lot of clubs and bars that would have shut down, a lot of companies that won't have made it through the crisis. And I don't think the immediate future economically is going to be very bright. On the bright side, there is some hope on the horizon. The vaccine, the Guardian released an exclusive um, yesterday saying that they're looking at vaccine rollout from as early as 
the 7th of December, which is next week, essentially. So things are on the up and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And um, a lot of public health officials and scientists seem to be quite optimistic that we may be able to get ourselves out of the out of this the worst of this mess by the end of March, April sort of time. I mean, I do think it is interesting that they've actually appointed a minister whose sole responsibility for the next few months will be the rollout of the COVID vaccine. They've appointed Nadim Zahawi, who, I mean, I think it's worth saying, will probably become one of the most popular politicians in the country if this all goes smoothly. And of course, there is a big if. Um, the talk around the vaccine is quite complicated. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk of different levels of efficacy of each vaccine. And there's to be honest, there's quite a lot of variation in the timescales that people are talking about. Some people are talking about next week, even I've heard, or, you know, mid-December. And other people are talking about early spring is going to be the rollout. Because there's so many different vaccines. There's the Pfizer vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, like the Moderna vaccine. So, like, it depends on all of them already. And I guess there's also a um, priority list. So that I saw the article yesterday and I think it said that, like, yeah. healthcare workers would be getting maybe vaccines um, by like sometime in December but then I think that by the time everybody's got it it's going to be and it's not even everybody whoever wants to take it I guess it will be I'm I'm imagining like sometime in the spring yeah because I think it's going to take a while to get everyone yeah I think they were saying that they're going to start with NHS workers and then care home residents and workers and then over 80s I think it will go sort of down the list of who is is classed as the most extremely vulnerable um and then i think they were saying like general rollout will start yeah in the springtime but hopefully by that point the better weather and the fact that at-risk people have started to get vaccinated should hopefully begin to push the r number in the right direction hopefully let's hope so <laughs> the main issue isn't going to be western countries where first of all we're making it secondly we've got good a good bureaucracy so we can manage to roll it out the big issue is getting it to places that it's notoriously difficult to get to anywhere and vaccinating kids that's notoriously difficult to vaccinate anyway i mean yeah this is like a whole other issue but i guess like i do a lot of work about like the vaccine and how it kind of needs to be a global effort because we're not safe everywhere then kind of we're not safe anywhere basically and like richer countries like the uk and the us have been buying up like vaccine candidates so it like puts other places at like more pressure because they're not going to have as much access than we are because we've bought them all up i think that's a great way of putting it that we're not safe anywhere until we're safe everywhere because if we do want to return to this globalized world of mass travel mass international trade which obviously a lot of people do some people don't but a lot of people do then we're going to need everywhere to be safe it's definitely interesting but i think it's not all completely bleak um i think that generally like past sort of vaccination efforts have shown that it can be successful. So I think as you're, yeah, you're right. It's not going to be like you can just hop on a plane and go anywhere, maybe for quite a while. But I think that I, I have hope. I really do have hope for like 2021 that it won't be all doom and gloom. Also, the system, the systems are already, already mostly built up with through like the aid that Britain donates to other countries, even though we're cutting it. So I think there, yeah, I think there's hope. I mean, definitely, like the news of the vaccines, like made me feel like excited for like the first time in a long time, and like feel some sense of relief. I was gonna say, I just want to say, I'm so happy that hopefully soon you'll be able to sort of resume your normal life because I cannot imagine how difficult it has been for you. Yeah, I completely agree. I think all of our thoughts, I think everyone's thoughts are with yourself, Izzy, your family and people who are in the same situation as you up and down the country and throughout the world. And, you know, let's just all hope that this vaccine gets developed, rolled out and rolled out to the right people very soon.
I think that's I think that's a nice Ooh. note to end on actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um yeah, well thank you so much guys for joining us on the podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion. Obviously, COVID is on everyone's mind at the moment and everyone has plenty of thoughts. But yeah, it's been a really great chat. Um, Eve, do you think we'll be able to get in one more episode before Christmas? Yeah, I reckon so. I reckon we can do that. Lovely. Well, stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And the Meridian podcast will be back very soon. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.